Good morning. I invite you to have one hand in Deuteronomy chapter 2 and another in Ephesians chapter 2. And as you're turning there, a few announcements, a few uh, house matters. I stated last week, and just, just a reminder, that next week will be a business meeting following the service. Uh, members and non-members are uh, likewise invited and welcome to attend. So it'll be an opportunity just to review some of the events and some of the things that are going on in the church, as well as a platform to, to ask questions and uh, hear answers. I would also uh, strongly encourage you to reach out, uh, take an opportunity this week to reach out, text, call, email. If you know where they live, just show up wearing a mask. <sighs> Uh, get in touch, drop a line, uh, make some contact with, with some of your church family who you may not have seen for a while. They're, they're still here. Let them know you miss them. Let them know you're praying for them. If you don't know how you can be praying for them, ask. Specifically this morning, I wanted to, uh, have us as a church pray, uh, for those, uh, on the other side of the world, who, whose lives have been impacted by the explosion in Beirut, as well as for our brothers and sisters in California. I believe that they are uh, a step ahead of us, that whatever happens to them as far as uh, how politics are going to step in and restrict um, liberties, freedoms, and activities of the church, I believe that what happens in California that will uh, that other states will follow suit. One particular and notable church, uh, the church where, where I went, uh, the, the church that housed my seminary, uh, they were informed that their head pastor would be arrested if they continue to hold um, in public services. And they've already been threatened by the state of Los Angeles to have power and water shut off to their facilities if they continued to meet. And so I bring this up not because I want to take this opportunity to rail against the anti-Christian California government. I specifically want us as a church to pray for our, for our brothers and sisters in the Lord who are going through that. They, they have it more intense than we do. They could use your prayers. They could use your petitions your pleadings before the Lord that they would have wisdom, that they would know what is the prudent and the discernible thing to do right now. I mean, hindsight, we, we always know what to do when we're looking through the lens of hindsight, right? We need wisdom. We need prudence. We need, we need wisdom from above to know how should, how should we act? What should our conduct be when we are in the thick of it? Beloved, they're in the thick of it now, so pray for them. I'll, I'll give you a minute to pray, and then we'll pray. Uh, I'll, I'll pray uh, aloud. Our good and gracious and compassionate God, we beseech you. Lord, we, we must confess and apologize for the times that we have been insensitive and indifferent to the sufferings of our fellow believers the times that we have maybe looked at their trials and sufferings and looked at maybe the uh, their failures 
to act wisely and maybe in our in our quiet times of reflection we thought why well, we would have done so much better lord forgive us for our for any spirit of haughtiness that, or or pride that we may have had help us to be more compassionate towards our brothers and sisters out in the world who are suffering who are under pressure pressure to conform pressure to compromise pressure to do what people placed in authority have told them to do people who feel pressured to do things not because they are right not because your word says it but because they are being coerced we pray lord that you would give them wisdom give them meekness give them self-control your word says that the anger and the wrath of man does not accomplish the righteousness of god far too often we act in our anger help help our brothers and sisters to do what is right may their testimony may their public witness may even this even this may this be a proclamation that is heard that the highest authority is not man it is not a governor it's not even a president it is you i pray that unbelievers and believers alike would be would see and be convicted by the conviction and the steadfastness of those who are trusting in you right now down in California. Amen. Deuteronomy chapter 2. Again, this is Pastor Moses recounting the previous 40 years that he has had leading Israel. He says, Then we turned and set out for the wilderness by the way to the Red Sea as the Lord spoke to me and circled Mount Seir for many days. And the Lord spoke to me saying, You have circled this mountain long enough. Now turn north and command the people saying, You will pass through the territory of your brothers, the sons of Esau who lived in Seir, and they will be afraid of you. So be very careful. Do not provoke them for I will not give you any of their land even as little as a footstep, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. You shall buy food from them with money so that you may eat, and you shall also purchase water from them with money so that you may drink. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all that you have done. He has known your wanderings through this great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. You have not lacked a thing. So we passed beyond our brothers, the sons of Esau, who lived in Seir, away from the Arabah road, away from Elaf and from Ezion Geber. And we turned and passed through by the way of the wilderness of Moab. Then the Lord said to me, do not harass Moab, nor provoke them to war, for I have not given you any of their land as a possession, because I have given Ar to the sons of Lot as a possession. The Emim lived there formerly, a people as great and numerous as tall and tall as the Anakim, like the Anakim, they are also regarded as Rephaim, but the Moabites call them Emim. 
The Horites formerly lived in Sair, but the sons of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them from before them and settled in their place, just as Israel did to the land of their possession, which the Lord gave to them. Now arise and cross over to the brook Zered yourselves. So we crossed over the brook Zered. Now the time that it took for us to come from Kadesh Barnea until we crossed over the brook Zered was 38 years until all the generation of the men men of war perished from within the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. Moreover, the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from within the camp until they all perished. So it came about when all the men of war had finally perished from the people that the Lord spoke to me saying, Today you shall come, you shall cross over Ar, the border of Moab. When you come opposite the sons of Ammon, do not harass them nor provoke them, for I will not give you any of the land of the sons of Ammon as a possession because I have given it to the sons of Lot as a possession. It is also regarded as the land of the Rephaim, for Rephaim formerly lived in it, but the Ammonites called them Zamzumin, a people as great, numerous, and as tall as the Anakim, but the Lord destroyed them before them, and they dispossessed them and settled in their place, just as he did for the sons of Esau who lived in Sair when he destroyed the Horites from before them. They dispossessed them and settled in their place even to this day. And the Avim who lived in villages as far as Gaza. The Kaftarim, who came from Kaftor, destroyed them and lived in their place. Arise, set out, and pass through the valley of Arnon. Look, I have given Sihon, the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land into your land. Begin to take possession and contend with him in battle. This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you upon the peoples everywhere, under the heavens, who when they hear the report of you will tremble and be in anguish because of you. So I sent messengers from the wilderness of Kedemoth to Sihon, king of Heshbon, with words of peace, saying, let me pass through your land. I will travel only on the highway. I will not turn aside to the right or to the left. You will sell me food for money so that I may eat and give me water for money so that I may drink. Only let me pass through on foot. Just as the sons of Esau who live in Sair and the Moabites who live in Ar did for me until I cross over the Jordan into the land which the Lord our God is giving us. But Sihon, king of Heshbon, was not willing for us to pass through his land. For the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate in order to deliver him into your hand as he is today. The Lord said to me, I have begun to deliver Sihon and his Land over to you. Begin to occupy that you may possess his land. Then Sihon, with all his people, came out to meet us in battle at Jehaz. The Lord our God delivered him over to us, and we defeated him with his sons and all his people. So we captured all the cities at that time and utterly destroyed the men, women, and children of every city. We left no survivor. We took only the animals as our booty and the spoil of the cities which we captured from Aroer, which is on the edge of the valley of Arnon, and from the city which is in the valley, even to Gilead, there was no city that was too high for us. The Lord our God delivered all over to us. Only you did not know, go, go near to the land of the sons of Ammon, all along the river Jabbok and the cities of the hill country, and wherever the Lord our God 
had commanded us. Let's pray. Lord, we, we see another passage with a lot of names, names of people we've never met or heard from, places we've never heard or even dared or thought of uh, traveling to. But we see people after people, nation after nation, you gave to them land and a place to call home as a possession. You, you were gracious and kind and giving even to a people who weren't called by your name because that's the kind of God you are. And then we see you fulfilling your covenant and giving, doing everything you said you would do and giving a land to possess to Israel, a people whom you called out by grace, not because they deserved it, not because they were a mighty people. You promised to give them a land and here you are doing that very thing, not because they've warranted it, not because they deserved it, but because you are a kind God and a gracious God. Lord, let us read from this passage. Let us leave here with the strong conviction that you are a kind and a merciful and a giving and a gracious God. Amen. All right, now New Testament time. Flip over to Ephesians chapter 2. And put your finger in Colossians 3 because we're going to close looking there. Ephesians 2 and Colossians chapter 3. Calling this one, but God. As we look in the text, I think you'll see why. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 4 to 6. Those of you who aren't travelers might be surprised to know that the highest spot within the contiguous United States is Mount Whitney at 14,495 feet. And from there, you can see a captivating panorama of the Sierra Nevadas, various lakes of indigo blue and turquoise, and you can see the Mojave Desert. It is a absolutely captivating, stunning, thrilling view from what feels like the top of the world. That the air is crisp, crisp and cool and, and crystal clear. And from here, interestingly, you can see to the southeast, a place that is basically diametrically opposed and opposite to the top of Mount Whitney in absolutely every regard. 80 miles to the southeast lies the lowest point in the United States. Not just the contiguous United States, but the entire, all 50 states. It is the hottest place in the United States with a record temperature of 134 degrees in the shade. And I would dare say it is the most miserable, insufferable, merciless, most inhospitable place there is that you could live if you would, if you would want to live there. And it is aptly named Death Valley. And if you know the topography of Death Valley, it's basically a naturally formed 
uh, conventional heater. That's why it's so hot. It is such an amazing contrast between these two places that are so remarkably different and yet amazingly close, only 80 miles. You can see one from the other. And that kind of close but stark and vivid contrast is the kind of contrast that Pastor Paul has painted in our passage today. Beloved, verses 1 to 3 is our was our death valley. Dead in sin, enslaved in sin, condemned in sin. And that's where we were, that's what we that's what we were, but God saved us. And that salvation that he brought about is what Paul takes verses 4 and 6 to describe for us. And before he gets into uh, describing what God did to save us, first he adds some color and some context and he tells you why. Uh, I, I think I think this is very helpful because knowing why someone does what they do, it, it helps add meaning and value and sentiment to the action that is done. It, it helps us to appreciate what has been done, which is one of the one of the things we need to walk away from this passage. We have to walk away marveling at what God has done and. To help us to that end, Paul first tells us why. Why did God save us? Why did God do what he, do what he did? We see that in verses 4 and 5. And then in verses 5 and 6, he finally gets around to saying what God did to save us. Let's read the text. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So first we, we consider what Paul has, has laid before us, these these qualities of God, these attributes, these characteristics of God that he is, he is attaching to the main verb of the passage because they're, they're, they're qualifying, they're enhancing what it is that God did. And so we're going to consider them first. And by looking at these, we're seeing what was going on in the heart and the mind of God when he saved us. What did he feel when he was looking at our situation, at our death valley in verses 1 to 3? The first quality that, that Paul brings up is God's mercy. We see that he is merciful. He says, being, but God, being rich in mercy. We see that he is merciful. Mercy, one of my favorite attributes of God. Mercy is, at its base root, what, what it basically means is to show kindness, to show compassion to to have concern for for another person and, and in that sense mercy is very closely related to to love to agape love 
But what really uh, adds a distinction to mercy, and this is how we commonly use mercy in the English language, is we say that mercy is unmerited kindness. Mercy is, is love and uh, compassion, concern, to, to be a, of a favorable disposition towards somebody when a favorable disposition has not been earned. It is being kind towards someone when someone has done nothing to invite kindness upon them. We also uh, tend to define it um, inversely by saying when when the opposite of kindness is owed, when when anger is expected, mercy would be the withholding of that anger. And most of the time we see God's mercy on display, it is because of uh, the inverse definition that I just used. Most of the time we see God's mercy on display, man has has not only done nothing to warrant God's warmth and and kindness and affection uh, on the on the rather uh, on, on the other uh, he has frankly done something that has an invited displeasure. Most of the time we see God's mercy brought to bear. Man has sinned and he has courted he has invited God's displeasure and judgment and wrath. In the garden, two creatures from the de- from the dirt defied the living God. They defied their creator. And despite being clearly warned that they would die when they ate of the one tree they were told not to eat from. They had every other tree made available to them. And they were told that the the allowance was great. The prohibition was just this one little tree. And they did it anyway. And they became everything that we read in verses 1 to 3. Dead in sin, enslaved in sin, and condemned in sin. How did God respond? Not as a harsh authoritarian. He clothed them. Well, first he called to them. He called them. And then he clothed them, and he gave them a promise that a seed would come who would not only destroy their sin, but he would destroy their serpentine saboteur. Beloved, that is mercy. They deserved none of that. They deserved far worse than that. They got mercy. In the Exodus, we see Israel has entered into covenant with God. And again and again, we, we have seen them affirm the covenant. They say, we will keep this covenant. What you have commanded, we will do. And time and time again, we see they did not do what they said they would do. They, they tempted God. They tested God. They were fickle when they were to be faithful. They were timid when they were to be strong and courageous. They were haughty and arrogant when they were to be thankful and humble. Instead of being, instead of being uh, grateful, they grumbled. Instead of being dependent on God, they were presumptuous. They were self-willed. And yet time and time again, we see God 
withholding what they deserved. We see God being merciful. We see God tending to their needs. I mean, didn't we just read that this morning? He said, not a thing you have lacked. Elsewhere, the scripture tells us that their sandals did not wear out. Their clothes did not wear out. We know that God fed them manna and quail, and he gave them water from a rock. He gave... he. Uh, where they traveled in the wilderness of Zin, like, like Death Valley, it can get incredibly cold during the night and incredibly hot during the day. During the cold night, they had a pillar of fire that kept them warm. During the hot day, they had a cloud that suppressed the hot light of the sun. We see God being kind and compassionate and consider it to a people who do not deserve those things. This is why David wrote of God in Psalm 103, verse 10. He has not dealt with us according to our sins. Our sins merit a certain kind of response. David says, God has not dealt with us according to that. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor has he rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness. And those of you who have been here for a while know that loving kindness, chesed, is my favorite Hebrew word. Covenant loyalty, steadfast love, covenant-keeping love, love that doesn't quit, love that doesn't die. I was delighted to find out this week that the, that the Septuagint translators, the Jewish scribes who, who turned the Hebrew scriptures into Greek, they took this word chesed. Do you know what word they used when they translated it? Mercy. The, the word we see in our text today, mercy. Beloved, your God is rich in mercy. He is a merciful God. I, if everyone were honest, they would attest the fact that there are sins and trespasses that they have committed against their God, they have committed against their man, and God still not only puts air in our lungs, he not only puts food in our bellies or clothes on our back or roofs over our head, but he makes the sun to shine, he makes the rain to fall, and he makes the birds to sing. This is a wonderful world. It is a beautiful, gorgeous world where the, the scriptures say the heavens declare the glory of God and the work of his hands. We get to live and enjoy that. God is merciful. If nothing but a proper code of rewards and retribution were followed, if, if our daily existence was nothing more than a mere program of, of cause and effect, of act and consequence, Life, I think life would be, would have been 2020 every single year up to this point. Chaotic, despotic, horrible. But that's not what we receive. Is it? Have, have any of us, can we say that we have gotten our just desserts? We receive grace and blessing and provision and protection. The sunshine, the rain falls on the unjust as well as the just. Why? Because God is merciful. 
God's mercy means that he is kind and compassionate to verse chapter 2, verse 1 to 3 kind of people. You know what kind of people that is? Sinners. God is kind to sinners. And notice that Paul doesn't just say that he's, he, he doesn't just say that God has mercy or that he's just that he's merciful. What does Paul say? He is what in mercy? What? He is rich in mercy. His mercy is abundant. He is, he is abounding in mercy. His mercy does not easily run out or dry out or thin out. He is not like the, he's not like the grumpy miser who only gives relief or aid or who's, who only gives a semblance of being considerate or kind under some kind of uh, external force or under compulsion or because he's obligated to do so by some legal contract. Do, do you know people, they only do something that could even remotely come across as kind because they have to, as opposed to somebody who's kind because they can be? Beloved, our, our God is rich. He is abundantly, inextricably rich in mercy. He gives freely of his mercy. He gives without constraint in his mercy. John Eady said this, though it, being his mercy, though it has been expended by him for six millennia. I mean, you think about all the sin that has gone on over the, over the last 6,000 years. All the sinners who have received mercy. It has been expended. It has been spent. It has been given it has been exercised by him for six millennia and myriads and myriads have been partakers of it. His mercy is still an unexhausted mine of wealth. Church, your God saved you because he is rich in mercy. He also saved you because he is loving. He is loving. We see that as we continue in verse 4, because of his great love with which he loved us. And this is another quality of God that I, I, I love because, just quite frankly, it is so lovely. And we've looked at this word agape before. We, we, I think we know something of, of what it means. It's uh, like mercy. Agape doesn't stop and consider what is being given to me before I give to you. No, agape love looks past what is deserved. Like mercy, agape looks past what is warranted, what is earned. And, and that's why we say it's unconditional love. It, 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 there is nothing that makes agape go, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, not you. Definitely not you. Agape love doesn't do that. Like mercy, agape seeks to improve the condition of others. It, it, it seeks to apply acts of kindness, to, to, to build up, to safeguard, or really to do any kind of good to another. And as God's mercy is rich, Paul says that his love towards us is what? It is great. God's love towards us is great. Now, why is that so? 
I mean, is, is Paul just, is, is, does he just have a, a certain word quota that he has to hit? And so, you know, he, he came up a little short the first time around. And, and so he comes back and adds this in. No, let's consider this. Why is God's love so great? One, it's not just any person's love that, is, that has been bestowed upon you. Who is it that is loving you? Who is it rather who has loved you? It is God. The greater the giver, the greater the gift that is given. Let me, let me put the, uh, posit this before you. Whose award carries more weight? The teacher or the principal? Whose? The principal. Thank you. You get a gold star. Who, who's, uh, who, whose award carries more weight? The supervisor or the company president? company president which one carries more weight the key to the city given to you by the mayor i mean that's pretty good right or the congressional medal medal of honor given to you by the president of the united states the greater the giver the greater the gift that is given and it is none other than the creator of the cosmos paul says who has loved you that makes it a great love secondly Consider the price, the great price that God paid to love you. Romans 5, 8 says this, God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is an incredible length that God's love has gone to be applied to you. The greater the length that love goes to be applied, the greater the love is. Consider the effects of the love. John 3.16. God so loved the world that he what? He gave his beloved son. To what end? To what effect? That whoever believes in him shall have what? A pretty swanky life? Health, wealth, and prosperity? Two kids, a boat, and a motorcycle? What did we get as a result of God's, God loving us? Everlasting life. Consider the longevity of God's love or the duration of God's love. Romans 8, 38 and 39. I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principality nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing. These are all things that can separate you from the love of someone who is next to you. But Paul says none of those things will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's why we sung this morning, from the rising to the setting sun, what? His love endures forever. It doesn't peter out. It doesn't falter. It endures I want you to see that God's love is not a mere sentiment. We, some people talk about God's love. I think we think about God's love sometimes like it's nothing more than a platitude, like it's a pie-in-the-sky concept. It doesn't really mean anything. It's just we got to talk about it because you know we're kind of expected to at church. But I, I want you to see, Paul wants you to see, there are concrete truths about God that manifest in concrete action that ha- results with concrete effects. 
God's love, as well as his mercy, God's love explains why our God is kind to sinners, why he saves sinners. The third, the third quality that of God that Paul brings up is, is that he is gracious. And if, if you're looking, you notice that while we're still in this part of verse, um, Concluding verse four, going in, going into verse five, we don't, we don't see the word grace yet, but Paul, I make this point as an inference to the fact, because despite Paul not overtly saying the word grace yet, he does lay down the condition that made God's grace a necessity, which is what? What was our condition? Death. He says we were even when we were dead in our transgressions. We weren't sick, disadvantaged, or down on our luck. There's a reason Paul chose that word, dead. We were completely and utterly helpless and hopeless and incapable of doing anything about our plight. A dead man can't do anything to help himself. The sick man can take some kind of measure to to get well. The disadvantaged man can change his circumstances, but the dead man, he can pull all his resources together. He can he can he can consider all his options. He is never getting out of his tomb. Being dead and sin meant that we brought nothing to God's table. We had nothing to offer him. And as one theologian says, we had nothing to contribute to our salvation except for the sin that made it necessary. If you go to the bank today and you try to get a loan, they're going to have some, uh, some rubric and they're going to determine what is the risk to giving a loan to this individual. That they want to see that you have some means of backing up your claims that, that, uh, that you'll be able to pay the money back. They want to know that they're not giving you their money, um, uh, in a, in a foolhardy manner. And if it falls through, that they're going to be able to, to, to compensate for their losses. We were not in that position. We had nothing to barter with. We had no collateral. We had nothing to convince God, God, it, it, it's worth it for, for you to consider giving us life. Nothing to entice God with, nothing to tip the scales, nothing to win him over. If God was going to show favor, it was going to be unmerited. It wasn't going to be because we could do anything, it was because God chose to be gracious. And that's exactly what he what he is. He is gracious. And and notice, as soon as Paul does tell us the first thing that God did, made us alive together with Christ, all of a sudden, bam, there you go. By grace, you have been saved. So he sets up the the, the condition that made grace necessary. And then he tells us at the end of verse 5 that it is by grace that God has done this very thing. And then he says it again in verse 7. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness. And then he says it again in verse eight. Paul can't, you know, I think he tried withholding it maybe in verse five, but now he can't say it enough. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. 
God's mercy is rich, his love is kind, or his love is great, and his grace toward sinners who don't deserve it is kind. That is why God saves sinners like us. That is why we are no longer where we were. His mercy, his love, and his grace. That's why God did what he did. Because those things are true of him. Now, we consider what what did God do? What did he do to save us from where from where and what we were? Well, we see that uh, in verses 5 and 6 that Paul now draws back upon upon uh, each of the three points that he made in verses 1 to 3. These three we can call them th- diagnoses that we had in sin. And he shows that God responded. God countered each diagnosis. And we, and we, by grace, we have a new reality in Christ to this day for each of those three things. What were the three things? Verses 1 to 3, we were dead in sin, we were enslaved in sin, and we were condemned in sin. Verse 1, there it is, dead in sin. Verse 5, but God What? How did God counter our deadness in sin? What did he do? You were dead, but God made us alive together with Christ. We were, as verses 2 and 3 depict, we were enslaved to sin, but God raised us up with him, which is Christ And then we were children of wrath in verse 3, condemned as criminals in sin, but God did what? He seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, first we consider that he made us alive together with Christ. And to know what this means, we, we have to start with what being dead in trespasses and sins meant. We weren't merely disinclined to, to the things of God and faith and repentance and spiritual things. We were dead in them. We were apathetic to God. And when, when he made demand, certain demands of us, we hated him. We were cut off from God. We were mortally and fatally estranged from, from God in every way, but God made us alive together in Christ And he countered, he flipped everything that it it meant to be dead in in sin. Where the dead man suppresses the truth of God, the living man receives it, and by God's grace, now he enjoys it. Now he he loves it. What what David said in Psalm 19.7 is true. The law of the Lord is perfect. It what the soul restores. Grace that used to detest the old man, it is now a joy. Grace is now a joy to the new man. Grace is now the very means by which the new man lives. Grace is the means by by which the new man endures each of his daily hurdles and his struggles. His heart is no longer deaf to the Holy Spirit. He is instead quickened. 
He is not deaf. He is hearing. He is capable of favorably responding to the things of God. His, his mind, his heart is no longer bored by the exposition of Scripture. I mean, sure, some, sometimes some sermons can be a little, little more dry than others, but, but generally speaking, even, even, uh, from a sermon that's like a dry cracker, he, he receives nourishment. He can see the good in even the driest of a sermon. He, he, he sees immediate value in reading the Bible for himself, cracking the dust off of it. And reading it for himself, he sees immediate value in memorizing scripture. Prayer to the new man, it's no longer a drudgery. He's, these things are all now as he sees for himself, he sees that these are means of grace by which he is nourished, by which he is fed, by which he is fortified and made strong and equipped for daily Christian living. His hope is no longer in himself, but in his God who saves. And fellowshipping with the saints, even those who have nothing to offer, uh, no, no, even those who have no social or materialistic or political advantages to, to associate with, so being with them is no longer a drag, but is a delight. Now, sure, he has the... He has the same brain, the same, the, the same skills. His glasses are the same prescription and he still likes to order his coffee the same way. I mean, in a, in a sense, uh, from one point of view, he's the same guy, right? He's, you're, you're the same person in, in a sense that you were before, but in another sense, you're an entirely new person. The new man or lady has a disposition that is now now reverse. It is, it is disinclined to the sin that he is now very conscious of and, it, and that he is now broken over. He is now living in a Roman 7 world where there was no struggle to sin. Now the new man struggles against his sin. He is conscious over it. He is broken over it. He, he fights it. He battles it. He wages war with it. And he is not only disinclined to the sin that he used to live in and live for, now the new man is inclined towards righteousness. He, which means he hungers to do. He has a craving. He has an inner desire, an inner compulsion to, to want and to pursue and to reach for doing what is right and what pleases his God, even when no one's looking. That's when you know that's, that God has done a work in someone is when they want to do right, even when no one's looking. He is empowered by the Holy Spirit to do what is right. He is now favorably responsive towards his creator. The alive man is no longer dead to God. He is alive to God. This amazing God who, as Romans 14, 17, 4, 17 says, gives life to the dead. I praise God that he is merciful and that he is loving and that he is gracious to counter the deadness that sinners are in and, and miraculously, supernaturally 
applies his power to make dead people alive unto him. I praise God for that. So not only did he make us alive, not only did he, did he counter or respond to our deadness by making us alive together with Christ, but he also countered our enslavement to sin by raising us up out of our enslavement together with Christ. And we see that uh, in, in verse 6. And he raised us up together with him, with who is Christ. As we looked last week, where we used to be, we had three terrible slave masters. We had the world, which is made up of sinful men. We had the devil, who led man into sin to begin with and who still tempts with sin. And we had our very own sinful lusts that, that demanded satisfaction and, and in so doing drove us deeper and deeper and further into sin than we ever thought we would go. These were our t- slave masters, our taskmasters. These are the forces whipping us again and again and again to sin. And from each of these, God saved us. Now, how, how did he save us from the world? Well, Colossians 1.13 says that he rescued us from the domain of darkness. And here it is, transferred us to the kingdom of of his beloved son. You used to walk to according to to this kingdom around around us, the kingdom in which you were naturally born in, but you have been through the new birth in being made a new creation, God has transferred you. He has transferred your citizenship to a new kingdom. That's why Philippians 3:20 says our citizenship is where? Washington, King County. Where? heaven those of you with masks on you need to speak a little louder our citizens sit sit, um, where we live (laughs) is not here (laughs) but there and 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 here's the truth here's the blessed truth about that long after this world the the moorings of this world have been shaken long after this world is no more that world will still be and will forever be jesus told his disciples in the upper room that he was leaving them so that he could prepare a place for them so that he said where i am there you may be also and and as he finished that very important teaching at the end of john chapter 16 he said these words specifically and this is in the same context He said, take courage, I have overcome the world. God has saved you from the world that he overcame. He also saved you from the devil. Hebrews 2, 14 to 15. Christ, through death, rendered him powerless who had the power of death, that is the devil, and freed those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Now what that verse tells us is that God hamstrung through Christ, through the cross, through the payment of sin that he accepted, he hamstrung death. He says in 1 Corinthians 15 that the sting of death has been removed. Death is no longer something to be feared because death is no longer something that ushers us or transports the believer into the judgment seat. 
The fear of the very weapon that the devil used to intimidate and to bully and to enslave countless, countless billions has been made by God through Christ for the Christian inert, impotent, and inconsequential as far as judgment is concerned. Death has lost its sting. God has saved us from the devil. Likewise, we have been saved from our lusts and our passions. Whereas, and Paul even said this up in, up in verse 3, we, we lived to satisfy them. We lived, our, our reason for being was to, was to indulge them. And they were the greatest authority over us. Sin, in a sense, sin could expect, sin could make place demands on us, and sin could expect to have those demands met. Sin could expect to be satisfied because it was the highest authority over us. But God changed that. Sin is no longer our master anymore. Sin's claim over us, sin's, we could say sin's prerogative to demand satisfaction has been abrogated. Beloved, that is good news. You don't have to sin anymore. Sin's authority over you, its lordship over you has been repealed. Because we now answer to a greater authority who, as Scripture says, and we've already seen this in in Ephesians chapter 1, we appeal to authority, to a greater authority who resides within us, who indwells us, who seals us, and who empowers us. And so sin may still tempt us, sin can still afflict us, but it does not rule over us. Sin no longer has dominion over you because God has saved you and the Holy Spirit has indwelt you and empowered you to deny yourself and to mortify your sin, which, by the way, those are things the old man cannot do. The man who is dead in sin, uh, in, in, he is dead in sin and living unto sin, he cannot mortify his sin because sin is currently his Lord. He loves it. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, we deny ourselves, we mortify that sin, and we pursue righteousness, which is exactly why Paul says what he says in Colossians 3, 1. Since you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above. If you haven't been raised with Christ, you cannot do that. but you, now you can because you have, been in, you have been slaved. You have been transferred. You have been rescued. You have been delivered from the enslavement of sin because he, by his mercy, because of his mercy, because of his love, and because of his grace, he lifted you up out of that morass. The third thing God did, the third thing that, pro, that was prompted by his rich mercy and his great love and his kind grace was that he seated you he seated us seated us together with christ we see that in the in the closing line of verse six we've been made alive together with christ 
We have been raised together with Christ and now we have also been seated together with Christ in the heavenly places. And just as a side note, notice that that uh, with Christ or together with Christ or with him is attached to each of those three words. Paul does a really interesting thing here. Uh, has anyone taken German? Okay, nobody. So uh, the German language is fascinating because it's like Legos. You basically stamp words together. Um, uh, you don't, you don't create a, you create a new word by taking existing words and you connect them together. And, uh, Paul does that. He takes the, he takes the word sune, uh, uh, like, like synagogue, and he atta- uh, which means together or with, and he attaches that to the word, words made alive, raised, and seated. We are made alive with Christ. And if it wasn't for Christ, if he, if Christ wasn't raised first, we wouldn't have been risen or made alive, or seated together. This is all in him, which is why a couple weeks ago I made that uh, emphatic point about the importance of being in Christ. It is him. Okay, rabbit trail aside. We Now we look at the fact that we've been seated with him in the heavenly places. Now, this is something we don't really see in our culture today. Um you know, you, you may get a, you may get, you may be invited to have lunch with a, with a CEO or maybe your, your boss, but, um, uh, I, th- I think a better picture of this is when kings of old, uh, would, would allow the privilege of, uh, um, they would allow the privilege of someone to sit with him, whether they're traveling or maybe uh, traveling in a royal carriage or, or having a meal together. And as the king and his guest are are sitting together, and as they talk and they, they can share observations and they can they can learn about each other and they can uh, discuss their personal affairs. And occasions like this, the, the the guest, this honored guest in this privileged situation, he can bring requ- uh, his personal requests to the king, and the king can cut all the through all the red tape and have those needs addressed and met. And it's you can see in a situation like that it is a blessing. It is good news for that man, for that guest, whoever they are, to be seated with the king, to have the king's undivided attention, to have, as it were, the fellowship of the king. That's a blessed place, right? The amazing thing is, is that is where we are. We are seated with him in Christ. We are seated with Christ in Christ. We who were enemies of the king, now we are friends. We are friends. And not just, not just friends, we are cherished friends. Beloved, as a, as a Christian, if you're in Christ, you are, you are made a colleague and a friend of the Supreme Lord, Master, and King of the universe, whose ear and attention you have. Is that good news? You had his wrath, now you have his favorable disposition. And you wonder why I sometimes get choked up when we sing once his enemy now seated at his table. You are seated in a favorable disposition. You are warmly welcomed by God. You are not just tolerated. 
We all know what it's like to be tolerated, just merely tolerated by somebody. You're not just tolerated in Christ. You're not just tolerated by God. You're not merely accepted by God, beloved, from the least of you to the greatest of you. You are cherished. You are welcomed with open arms. You are embraced. You are beloved. You are given the same affection as the Father has towards His own beloved Son, Jesus Christ, because you are in Christ. And that is why you are thus seated with Christ in the heavenly places. So if anyone ever asks, why should, why should you be let into heaven? You can say, and this is biblical, because God wants you there with Him. So as we, as we close, two things to consider. What does your salvation mean to you? What does your salvation mean to you? Does being made alive and being raised and being seated with Christ, does it mean what it means in light of being, of being formerly dead, formerly enslaved, and formerly condemned? I, if, if, if you, if you cut out, if you put white out, if you overlook, if you ignore verses one to three, verses four to six don't really mean, I mean, the, the wow is taken out of verses four to six. If you take the black velvet backdrop away from the diamond, the diamond ceases to sparkle. It loses its brilliance. What does your salvation mean to you? When you consider what God has done for you, do, do you, could you, do you see yourself as formerly being in verses one to three? Were you dead? Were you enslaved? Were you condemned? And are you now made alive? Are you now lifted up, raised, and seated with Christ in the heavenly places? Allow verses 1 to 3 to set the context for what verses 4 to 6 means in your salvation. Secondly, how then should we live if these things are true? And for that, I want to close with what Paul says in Colossians 3. And all of these concepts are here. Paul says this, Therefore, if you have been raised with Christ, which you have, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And in parentheses, by the way, you're there too. That's why you should be seeking them. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. There's the new life. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. Practical application. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, and evil desire, and greed. And the other side of that, verse 12. And as though that's what you should put off, here's what to put on. As those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. There, these are practical applications of the truths we looked at today. Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you for this incredible salvation that you have given us. We thank you, Lord, for being the God that you are. You are merciful. You are rich in mercy. Lord, if anyone here has, uh, has tended to downplay your mercy or to doubt your mercy, show them the, the abounding richness of your mercy. If anyone here has downplayed or doubted your love, show them the great love with which you have given to everyone who is in Christ Jesus. Help us to appreciate your grace because it is why we have been saved. You are an incredible God. Thank you for this new life that we have. Thank you for being raised in Christ. Thank you for being seated with him. May that impact us as we leave today. Amen.